Hello and welcome to the ProCE Podcast. Today's episode features Dr. Catherine Maples, a clinical pharmacy specialist at Winship Cancer Institute and adjunct clinical assistant professor at Mercer University College of Pharmacy and Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. And Dr. Tim Peterson, clinical pharmacy specialist from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. They will be answering frequently asked questions in multiple myeloma care and sharing their views on the future of myeloma treatment, CAR T cell and BCMA directed therapies, cost considerations for novel therapies, and supportive care measures. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Treatment Options in Relapsed Refractory Multiple Myeloma, Pharmacists' Perspectives. For more information on Dr. Maples and Dr. Peterson, along with a link to the complete program, please visit the show notes for this episode. The first question we have is, what are uh, the key take-home points that you'd like the audience to know in the multiple myeloma setting? I think some of the key takeaway points from my perspective, and I'll pass it over to Tim, are um, that the relapse refractory landscape of myeloma is continuing to change. Uh, we're seeing drugs being moved that were only being used in the relapse setting. We're seeing them be used into the initial infection setting, uh, for example, daratumumab. Um, so that's going to continue to impact what we can select and use in the relapse setting. So I think uh, one of the biggest takeaways is that it's continuing to evolve and change. Um, And then secondly, that just thinking about your patient and thinking about what they have previously seen and how can we expose them to novel agents because um, those novel agents and novel mechanisms that they haven't seen before will help achieve deep and durable responses. So switching from um, someone progressing on a LEN maintenance, switching to pomalidomide, um, switching to carfilzomib, using some of those second generation PIs and IMIDs can help achieve the deep and durable responses. Um, but I think that it is an ever-changing, ever-changing landscape. Yeah, I would, I would echo Catherine. I think this is a really exciting time for multiple myeloma, and it's an exciting time for pharmacists to be involved in the care of myeloma patients because there are so many novel agents that have come out and um, uh, new combinations, and we're learning a little bit more about sequencing. We're starting to have more emphasis on, on like Catherine talked about, the CD38s in combination with pomalidomide and second line. That's become much more of a staple than we had in years prior. Um, so we're, we're getting a lot of novel agents, and it's, it's very patient-specific that we have different options available to them um, that clearly we need to keep you know, their, their uh, quality of life in mind and their preference. And we're lucky enough that we have a lot of options for them to be able to really play an active part in their treatment. And in addition to all these regimens, therapeutic agents coming in the not-so-distant future either, so we have bispecific T-cell engagers that are in mid to late phase clinical trials now that are targeting BCMA and are targeting GPCR5D and all sorts of different targets and novel agents that will continue to come in the next couple of years. So it's already becoming, uh, you know, a little bit seemingly overwhelming, but exciting for the options that we have. And there's really no sign of it slowing down in the next couple of years. The durability of Idacabdachine looks to be significantly less than other CAR-T products used for other cancers. What do you suggest if a patient fails Idacabdachine? 
So that's, that's a question we're going to probably get more insight into in the coming years. So it's, it's obviously the first CAR T-cell construct that we have, um, but we also have additional ones that are forthcoming. Uh, Silta cell has a PDUSA uh, date coming in November, I believe. So similarly targeting BCMA, we're going to be learning more about uh, the depth and durability of that. But the unfortunate thing that we know with multiple myeloma is even with all these novel agents is that it's still incurable. Um, even with CAR T cells and with autologous stem cell transplant and allogeneic stem cell transplant, it is still un uh, incurable, unfortunately. Um, so I think as we get more of these kind of CAR T cell constructs with um, different domains and co-stimulatory domains, we're going to be able to probably improve upon the depth and durability and the uh, surrogates for depth of response, particularly minimal residual disease, which is coming more and more into play. Um, but I think with optimization of future constructs of CAR T cells and even learning more about cell, we'll be able to get deeper and more durable responses. Are there any patient characteristics or comorbidities that would help you decide when to use one of the BCMA targeted agents versus Selenexor combinations or melphaluflin? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so I would say it often does get presented to the patient as, uh, or here in my practice, it can be presented to the patient as belantamab as one option to pursue or a Selenexor-based regimen. Um, I think that some of the patient characteristics that I think about, um, the, the nausea and vomiting with Selenexor can be pretty debilitating. Um, it does require, from my perspective and, and practice, is some pretty aggressive antiemetic therapies. So if someone has had a history of nausea and vomiting with some of our other options that don't have a even moderate emetic potential, then that would make me a little bit leery of using a Selenexor-based regimen. Um, alternatively, someone who has um, any type of eye issue, like we, I had a patient with a retinal issue, which complicates their vision, and it's not a contraindication to using Melomath, but it does make us want to think twice about potentially adding another eye toxic agent that would worsen their vision, vision further. So um, while no severe contraindications, if they have a sensitive eye history, I might think twice about Bellamaf um, and Selenex or just thinking about their quality of life and if the nausea would be something that they're willing to, to handle. Considering the halt in the OCEAN trial, what should be done for our patients currently on milfelfin Fulfanamide. So the, the current recommendation and what's been done previously when the FDA has had to halt studies like this uh, is even within the OCEAN trial that if patients are currently deriving clinical benefit, um, then they are able to continue on therapy. Um, however, if they're, you know, stable disease and not really deriving clinical benefit, then it's recommended that they come off therapy, obviously. Uh, but that's what's been recommended by the FDA for patients that are enrolled in clinical trial, and it is still clearly available. Um, so I don't know, Catherine, if you have anything else to add to that? No, I don't. I I will say um, I, I have not heavily used this drug in clinical practice, so I can't speak to personal experience on this one, but that would be um, what I've seen with other drugs as well. Have they identified what the increased risk for mortality in patients with milfelfin fulfanamide was and how strongly is it associated with the drug? 
So this is a very recent FDA alert that uh, just came out. So from what I've personally seen is that they haven't actually shared what the toxicity was that was leading to increased risk of death. Uh, but it seemed pretty clear cut from how it's being presented from the FDA that they do highly associate it with the melatonin fluphenamide compared to pomalidomide and dexamethasone. Again, we're a little bit in kind of a holding pattern right now and kind of in the dark as we await more information because uh, we're clearly going to need some con uh, confirmatory safety analyses before we can continue giving this drug uh, and before those confirmatory studies can be, can be completed. But uh, my understanding is that the FDA granted you know, being able to, to halt these trials, they've, they've determined that they, they think it's highly associated with the, with the melflucin, but to what extent and what specific toxicity, whether it's infection or what have you, I, I have not seen that yet. When you use Selenexor, is it only combined with bortezomab, dex, or are other combinations considered for patients who have already received bortezomab? So that's a very good question. We're starting to see a lot more utilization of Selenexor. Um, the initial approval was, was just in combination with dexamethasone for patients who are heavily relapsed, but that was the, the dosing schedule had pretty rough tolerability from a GI standpoint. Um, so the regimen that's being utilized a little bit more frequently is that uh, in the question, bortezomib and dexamethasone as per the Boston trial. Uh, so for someone who's already received bortezomib, probably not going to be a great option. Um, unless they responded well to it, and it's been quite some time. Um, but as per the, the multi-cohort STOMP trial, um, you can utilize Selenexor in combination with either daratumumab or pomalidomide and dexamethasone. Um, that's something that's being, being investigated further right now, but it is something as per the NCCN that you can utilize as a different combination. And we started to see a little bit of it in clinical practice. And I think we're starting to see more and more Selenexor being adopted in relapse disease. Of the several second-line alternatives listed, which ones are the most cost-effective options? So I think that that's a good question and a challenging question because it is very typically dependent upon the patient's insurance um, and their individual uh, kind of financial status. But the alternative options, um, you know, thinking about an all oral option with exazomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, if they have the an insurance that can keep those copays low, then that can really be a good option for patients because it does reduce the financial burden of coming to an infusion center. Um, other strategies for that would be using the once weekly dosing of carfilzomib. Um, but I think it unfortunately is pretty patient-dependent. Tim, I don't know if you have other thoughts. Yeah, that's, that's an important question for my alumni now that we have all of these different antibody therapies and we have so many novel agents that clearly none of these are inexpensive. Um, truthfully, I don't have a lot of experience from the managed care side of things. I know that there is some literature available for um, kind of the cost-effective analyses for these, for these regimens. Um, but I mean, potentially trying to minimize antibody-based therapies if you're really keeping in mind cost-effectiveness. Um, but that's, that's certainly a difficult kind of gray area that I, in my practice, we don't have a ton of experience in the managed care side of things to, to have too much to enlighten with that. How often is cost a factor um, in the use of sub-Q daratumumab for a patient? So from, from what I've seen in clinical practice, um, the, the nice thing is immediately upon FDA approval of subcutaneous daratumumab, the, the NCTN guidelines were updated, I think, honestly, the next week. 
Um, so what that means is from a third-party payer structure is that using subcutaneous daratumumab was appropriate for essentially all third-party payers uh, for any daratumumab-based regimen. So honestly, uh, basically immediately upon FDA approval and once we were able to actually acquire the drug, we were able to get approval for just about everyone. And, and I honestly can't think of any instances in which subcutaneous has been denied by a third-party payer in favor of intravenous uh, even early on in its approval uh, pathway. How are your centers handling pre-medications and wait times for daratumumab sub-Q? For a cycle one, day one, new start daratumumab, um, getting sub-Q dara, we pre-medicate, um, so 30 minutes waiting and then initiating the sub-Q injection and then they're monitored for three and a half hours after. Um, after the initial day one, the, and the pre-medication time can be shortened to 15 to 30 minutes. Um, so we have a relatively short waiting period for our patients. I would say that we're relatively similar to that as well. So uh, the acetaminophen, diphenhydramine, montelukast, and dexamethasone, typically it's on the order of an hour prior to the first dose. Um, and then again, to account for the median time to onset of the administration related uh, side effects that you talked about, I think it was 3.2 to 3.5 hours. We round it up a little bit. So our first dose, we require them to stay in the clinic for four hours afterwards so that we can manage any administration related adverse effects. And then all subsequent doses thereafter, we don't have an observation period. If they did react to the first dose, uh, then it's, it's uh, at the LIP's discretion whether or not they want a two to four hour observation with the second dose. Given the low rate of TLS with Benclexta in the multiple myeloma setting, is aggressive hydration plus or minus um, allopurinol needed? So I would generally say we, we should be checking tumor lysis labs at baseline. Uh, for someone who's starting venetic clax, just to get an idea, especially for myeloma patients, knowing that they're prone to uh, renal dysfunction, and that's going to make them more prone to electrolyte abnormalities, uh, hyperuricemia in the first place. So we should have a good baseline for that. Uh, more often than not, they're probably not going to require allopurinol and, and extra aggressive hydration. They should still be orally hydrating well, um, but not something like a CLL that we would do. Um, there are some caveats to that. And when we started using venetoclax uh, a couple of years ago, when the data started to come out for myeloma, we noticed that some patients that had soft tissue involvement of their multiple myeloma seemed to kind of behave a little bit more like a lymphoma and may actually be a little bit more apt to life. Uh, so those patients we've been a little bit more careful with and we've titrated them uh, closer to a CLL type titration, certainly not as slowly as they would do. Um, but a little bit more than we would for um, more of kind of standard myeloma patient. I don't know if that's been kind of similar to your experience, Catherine. Yeah, I agree. Um, we do not start all of our venenoclax patients on allopurinol just for the venenoclax. If they have a high disease burden, you know, high light chains when we're starting, we might think about allopurinol, but it's not a standard for everyone. Uh, we don't standardly hydrate everyone either. Um, and we, we tend to do a pretty quick ramp up um, if if uh, if needed at all, but I would agree with him that the patients with extramedullary disease would be the ones I would be more cautious with. Thank you, Dr. Maples and Dr. Peterson, for your answers to these important questions, and thanks to you listeners for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, treatment options in relapsed refractory multiple myeloma, pharmacist perspectives, 
please click on the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening.